Hi everyone, I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. In July 2018, election forecaster and analyst Rachel Biddecoffer did something extraordinary. Not only did she say the Democrats would retake the House, she predicted the number of seats, and she was only off by one. She's been a sought-after prognosticator ever since. You're not going to want to miss one minute of what Biddecoffer has to say. Yes, she says Biden will be the Democratic nominee. Yes, she says Democrats will win the White House back. Yes, Senators Susan Collins, Cory Gardner, and Doug Jones are toast. The question is, how does she know this? Why is she so certain? Find out right now. Rachel Bittekoffer, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Well, the pleasure's all mine, Jonathan. Thank you. Okay, so five years ago, nobody knew who you were. Two years ago, almost two years this come July, you did something that put you on the map. What'd you do? Well, two years ago in July, I, I came out and on Twitter where I had a grand total of 660 uh, Twitter followers, and I started trolling the big election forecasters, and uh, they were having serious conversations as to whether the Democrats could pick up the 23 seats they needed to flip the House. And I introduced my new theory and model, which was uh, arguing, no, 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 you guys are way undercutting this. It's going to be about 40 seats, and the reason why is because the electorate's going to be reshaped by backlash to Donald Trump. Now, you said in July, it was July 2018, you put out a forecast that said initially 42 seats. And folks thought you were nuts. They did. They thought I was nuts and, um, you know, took real umbrage to the certainty, number one, that I was talking about, um, especially because I was pointing out uh, specific districts. Some of them were um, obviously not con- controversial. They were agreed upon really competitive districts. They were labeled as toss-ups by others. but And I was saying, no, these are 100 percent going to flip. But really, um, especially things like Virginia's 7th district, which were not even on other people's radar at the time. Where is that? Uh, That's down in uh, the Richmond area, so the suburbs of Richmond. And I said, that district is going to flip. I don't care if it has uh, played host to one of the uh, House Freedom Caucus's most ideological members and David Bratt. It is going to be a Democratic seat after these elections. And, And that's what happened. Exactly. Okay, so why were you so certain? I was so certain, number one, because I had already developed the theory and watched it um, play out in one election cycle, actually, in the 2017 election cycle in Virginia, where I happened to be based. I um, had said to my colleague as we entered that polling season, we did polling, state polling there in Virginia, um, you know, this is my expectation. I think we're going to see an electorate that's much more democratically um, uh, democratically comprised. We're going to see more young voters, more voters of color, more women, more college-educated voters, and these voters are going to be breaking much more strongly for Democrats than what you've been seeing under the Obama years. And we need to account in this uh, in our likely voter modeling, because otherwise our polling is going to underestimate the uh, Democrats' support or uh, Ralph Northam's support in the election. And, you know, uh, my colleague was certainly um, in agreement that there was going to be uh, an advantage for Democrats. But the size and the shape of it, I think, um, you know, he was a little skeptical of until we saw it manifest in that Virginia election. And the 
election night, I was coming up to D.C. to do some uh, local radio on Whammy with Kojo Namandi, and uh, I was literally yelling in the car, oh, my gosh, I should have modeled this. I should have put something out. I, I knew this was going to happen. It was a nine-point route, and the Democrats picked up 15 seats in the House of Delegates. And so I committed right then and there. I was going to find a way to model my theory, and I was going to do something for 2018, and that's what I did. Okay, so you've sort of talked around your theory. Mm. What is the theory? So the theory is for the last eight years, of, you know, for the eight years, basically, of the Obama administration, you know, we had this Obama coalition emerge, right? 2006, you see the Democrats pick up control of the House of Representatives, and um, then you see them, you know, flipping the presidency in 2008. I mean, I think people forget how big of a mandate that Obama election was, picking up, um, you know, states like Missouri and North Carolina in that process. And then all of a sudden, it's just like, it disappeared, right? 2010, they go from from that huge Obama win in 2008 to just getting shellacked with 63 seats in the House of Representatives. And, you know, the narrative that was set on the cable news shows was, oh, the Democrats have reached with Obamacare and the independents turned against them. And that's the story of the, the auto bailout. And all yeah, of yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I was sitting at home and working on my Ph.D., just getting started in grad school to get to this point where I am now. Now, and I remember looking at the election data and just being like, that is not what this data says. The data says turnout collapsed. And when it did, it collapsed more heavily amongst Democratic voters, people who would cast ballots either as Democrats or independents, but cast them for Democratic candidates. And I just couldn't understand why the media narrative missed that important component. Uh, so, you know, when I was looking at, um, you know, the elections of 2014 and 2010, I was thinking about who didn't show up to vote more than anything else. And, you know, that's really what drives my research is this argument that in the polarized era, where we do have such little bit of crossover voting, Republicans voting for Democrats and vice versa. What matters at the end of the day in a competitive race is the is the composition of the electorate uh, demographically, uh, because that will determine the partisan composition. And if the partisan composition doesn't look good for Democrats, they're going to lose the race. And, and it only looks good, apparently, when Democrats are freaked out and they're only freaked <laughs> out when they're not in power. So <laughs> Democrats are always freaked out, even when they are in power. It seems to be like an inherent trait. You would think. Now, you, you said that turnout collapsed in 2010, but also in 2014. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the media, the chatter, the cable chatter then was it collapsed because of disappointment in in Obama, both in 10 and in 14. Is it as granular as that? Or is it that the the Democratic Party and the candidates didn't do enough to maintain the enthusiasm from uh, 08 and 12. So glad that you asked because um, anyone that follows me on Twitter will know that I put a lot of the onus on Democrats, uh, the Democratic Party, the D-TRIP, uh, the DNC, the DSCC, and the way that they approach electioneering as compared to the way that the Republican Party approaches electioneering. Talk so, about it. Um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, what happened, 
uh, Democrats do not do an effective job getting their voters excited to show up to vote. Uh, they like to have cerebral uh, conversations with voters that overestimate, no offense to the voters, the um, basically the intelligence of the electorate. They like think picky in conversations about Medicare for all exactly, and how you're going to pay for it. Exactly. If they think everybody's on a Morning Joe panel or something <laughs> like that. And um, whereas the Republicans are talking to the gut always, and it's always about stakes, right? If you don't show up to vote, Everything you love will fall apart and die, right? I mean, that's a that's a message, right? And they make people care about things that are are things people don't care about. People don't care about state and local politics. It's unfortunate. It's not fair. It's uh, actually irrational given the amount of influence that state and local politics has over one's life. But it's a fact, right? And so the way that Republicans deal with that is they tie, they nationalize state and local officials to national politics or to national issues like abortion and gun. And that way, the voters like, okay, I don't care about John Smith, but he supports Trump, and I love Trump, so I'm going to show up to vote. Right? Democrats really fail to tap into that nationalized messaging. I mean, you'll hear them all the time say, "Well, all politics is local," right? Like it's a like 1980 Tip O'Neill, you know, thing. And if that was ever true, it's certainly not true now. All politics is national. The Republican Party gets that. They get that voters will only show up in a high stakes environment. And so they make that high stakes environment for them. And so I'm trying not to skip ahead because given what you just said, I mean, what we have seen on both sides of the aisle is that as much as Democrats, Republicans of conscience and progressives can't stand and are worried and troubled by President Trump, the people who support President Trump really like him. And yet your 2020 model, at least last last I saw, correct me if I'm wrong, because um, I've got the map. I've got, the, I've got the, the map. That's the map. And you have Democrats, 279 electoral votes, Republicans 197, and you need 270 in order to win win the White House. Given that intensity level, this this you stand by this map. I do. In fact, I'm going to be updating that map. Um, you know, I'm not uh, doesn't get updated very often. It's not a polls based uh, forecast the way that uh, those probabilistic models that people are used to are. This is a basically a, a fast forward to election day. It's about demographics of the districts and college education, non-white population, and like party competition. And those are fixed factors, basically, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but I will update it uh, one time in March and probably again in September. So three times over the course of eighteen months or sixteen months, um, and. Uh, when I do, I'll be making a couple of those races a little bit more favorable for Democrats. Oh, yeah. OK. The, tell me, because I'm looking at a map where Arizona, Iowa, North Carolina and Florida are in gray, which are toss up. Are right. any of those changing? Well, I would tell you, but then, then I would be discouraging people to uh, check out my update. <laughs> so if you want to know what changes, you'll have to uh, come on to the Niskanen Center's website and, and check out the update when it releases. You should probably follow me on Twitter. <laughs> You're so good. <laughs> Never miss an opportunity to plug. Well, so are you making this update to um, your your projection, your prediction here because of what happened on Super Tuesday, yes. South Carolina and Super Tuesday. Yes. What happened? 
So what happened uh, is the Democratic Party's uh, voter base basically um, basically asserted itself, uh, putting putting forward um, you know really a strong uh, brick wall against uh, uh, you know nominating basically a, a, you know a fairly extreme nominee. So uh, it's never a good idea to put up an extremist as your uh, party pick. Now, uh, people who love my research will say, but Rachel, you argue that Democrats are way too um, you know when they do their campaigning. They're constantly making the mistake of being too moderate and too Too wishy-washy and too safe. And those things are absolutely true. But keep in mind, going with a full-blown, like, out-and-out socialist is kind of like not, you know, it's like ripping off your clothes and going skinny dipping when you haven't even, don't even know how to swim, right? So it's a little bit extreme, right? Uh, And, you know, in terms of Sanders, you know, that socialism problem is a big problem. Uh, I think a problem Warren, for all of her policy similarities with uh, Sanders, didn't have, right? Uh, So in terms of what the electorate is done, it has um, asserted itself as a risk-averse electorate. The turnout surges that we saw in Virginia, where turnout basically doubled since 2016. Which is incredible. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's my model in action. I mean, you know, uh, you've heard Bernie Sanders on the stump, oh, turnout's going to go up because of young people being excited about our revolution. And then you heard Biden Biden last night, our turnout went up. The, the turnout that, that surged, it was for me, right? And no, neither of those things are true. It's not true? No. And, the Bernie and, revolution, and, youth and, revolution. You know, and, yeah, and and the, neither of those things are true. And, you know, Pelosi and the, and the Democratic uh, Party thought turnout ballooned in 2018 because of the focus of health care. That's also not true. Turnout is going up for one reason, and I say in the article, for one really simple man. Right. It's going up because Donald Trump is in office and Democrats are terrified and so are independent leaners and they are showing up in droves. And where they're showing up is predominantly suburban America, where millennials have been, you know, they own houses now. They're 40 years old. Some of them are going bald. They have beer guts. They have kids. They have mortgages. You know, their kids are going into college now. And they have not been great voters because they were fat and happy with Obama in office. They never knew a world really where they, um, you know, were the opposition party, where they were looking at policies getting passed that they hated, and certainly not one in which they were looking at American institutions and norms getting portrayed every day, right? And now they are massively motivated to vote. And so, um, you know, a Washington Post analysis actually came out uh, looking at first uh, people who voted in this primary who didn't vote in 2016 and that they broke for Biden, right? And it's not because Biden, it's because those are probably these millennial suburbanites who are now motivated to vote because they're freaked out about Donald Trump America and they want to reassert stability. And and, uh, we saw that really play out last night in that primary. Um, So let's talk about the African-American vote. And we're having this conversation post-Super Tuesday Because Joe Biden did something no one thought he could do. They thought, sure, he'll win South Carolina. But no one expected him to win as big as he did. And for his folks knew his African-American vote would be strong, but not that strong. What what do the results so far tell you about 
black voters, South Carolina, and the ones who voted in Super Tuesday. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, you know, after South Carolina, if Mike Bloomberg did not exist, I would have expected Biden to do very well amongst black voters. Um, But, you know, to be able to um, dominate the way he did last night, where he basically put Bernie Sanders out of the running for the nomination, uh, you know, that it is above um, expectations for, I would think, anybody, uh, anybody's expectations. Um, And what's going on with that is, I mean, it's twofold. Number one, Sanders was facing this problem the whole time. He, you know, he, you know, the, the team would like to talk, talk about, progress in data amongst black voters. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't have great polling. Uh, A lot of the conversations about polls that take place are um, actually, they're not appropriate conversations because the end sizes for the polls don't actually statistically allow themselves well to be digging into the crosstabs and looking at preferences of of subgroups like blacks and whites and college educated and young people. So a lot of the times when you see people online or in TV talking about the um, su- the subgroups and survey data, it's it's actually, to me at home, I'm like, no, 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 you can't do that. They don't have enough data to do that, right? So we didn't really know for sure if um, Sanders was making gains amongst black voters because I didn't have a big, large, end size data set to look at. Uh, but my suspect, I suspected no, right? We didn't see that, um, you know, at least any evidence of that, even in the smaller end size studies. And although the team, the campaign team was asserting it to be true. And, you know, I I kept saying, you know, he's going to hit a a wall, just a question of will Bloomberg siphon off enough black voters as well that that a plurality is good enough for for Sanders, right? And, um, you know, we just couldn't know. I mean, how could we know? We've never seen a candidate spend a half billion dollars. I mean, when we think that about that in context, we could take all of the candidates from this cycle and the last cycle, that 2016 Republican field and the Democrats, and put them all together and then we might be approaching this Bloomberg money, right? Like, <laughs> we I mean, it's an it. astronomical amount of money, right? And you know, and and it wasn't just TV; it was digital, it was dig, it was uh, direct mail, it was grassroots, like uh, infrastructure. So it was really hard to anticipate how that was going to impact um, ultimately election day. And 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 come to find out. You know, as soon as those Virginia polls closed, it was pretty obvious that Bloomberg's investment was not going to pay off and that Biden's surge was going to be real. And that also, once again, black Americans, you know, are saving America from, <laughs> from itself. itself. Yeah. You know, <laughs> let me ask you a nerdy statistical question, because you're you're talking about end size. Mm-hmm. One of the things that drove drove me nuts in the run up to the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary to the point where people were voting was that these polls would come out mm-hmm. and the sample size, yes. I guess that's the end size. That's the end size. You would have a poll based on 458 people with yes. a margin of error of worth of five. Right. I'm sitting there screaming yes. at the TV. Why are you talking about this poll? Yes. This poll is trash. Yes. You're absolutely right. And then, you know, even at 800, when you start to talk about these subpopulations, you're really talking about margin of errors that are 10 to 12 to 15 points on those subpopulations. Which is, yeah. that renders them it useless. It renders them useless. useless. So useless. when you read my polling data, you will see I do not do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a reason. Okay, yeah. so for a rule of thumb for listeners going forward, what what what's a good sample, what's a good end size 
to where you look at it and go, oh, I can trust that. Is it a thousand, eleven hundred? Yeah. So you know, for horse race polling, especially when you have twenty five candidates in it, yeah, I would say a thousand is probably like the bare minimum, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, You know, if it's a two person race and it's a good survey with good sampling, voter file sample, yeah, you can probably get by those top lines with six hundred, but you definitely cannot get reliable statistics with something less than five hundred. Yeah. And then a plus or minus. Yeah. Not higher than four. Well, yeah, at five. 500, you, you are going to be stuck at a plus or minus a four point something. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's a, end size is a, is a major factor in that margin of error. Yeah. So like, I mean, in my little survey firm that I'm now going to be leaving at the end of the year at the Wasson Center, we are, um, you know, a little academic at a teaching college. We have about a $70,000 research budget a year, and you will not see any 463 end size studies coming out of my research firm. You know what? We do quality work. We we pull up, you know, at least 800, 750. You know, we work really hard to get mm-hmm. those end sizes. So there's really not an excuse for any firm to be able to to get those end sizes up. And let me ask you about something. One more South Carolina related thing. President Trump, the day before the South Carolina primary, held a rally in North Charleston where he told his followers to vote in the South Carolina primary because it's an open primary. Right. And having Republicans go and vote for Bernie Sanders. And there's a lot of concern that this so-called Operation Chaos would throw the elections. Do those sorts of shenanigans, that kind of sabotage, people call for it. Does it ever really work? No. And so I had read a political science article when I first started my graduate career. Um, It was a very long time ago. This article, when it was done in the 80s, looked at that um, sabotage voting and found no relationship. Now, granted, the media environment now is much richer. So the potential to reach an audience and get people to do that, you can reach them easier now. But my when I heard about like theories about it, I was skeptical. So I actually tested that in my Virginia survey, Hmm. intentionally designed it so that I could because we're also an open primary, uh, designed my survey to see how many Republicans said they were going to vote in the survey and also what was their vote choice in the survey. And my expectation was that there would be some Republicans voting in the survey, given that there were no contest on the other side, uh, but that there'd be more sincere voting than strategic sabotage. And that's exactly what I, I saw in my data, though the end sizes were not large enough for me to release the data. So I didn't. I just mm-hmm. talked about it on Twitter. Vaguely, and I said, "Look, I looked for this, and I can't release the data because of the statistics behind it. But I didn't see evidence that there's going to be this massive effort to like shore up Sanders." Okay, mm-hmm. and um, you know, then in the um, process of that, I realized that in 2016, about three percent of the Virginia electorate had been Republican, and so last night, the first thing I looked at in the exit poll data when it was released, I went right to Virginia. I pulled it up. I looked at the party identification, 6% of the electorate said that they were a Republican. So that's a doubling from 2016. And of their preferences, uh, disproportionately, it was Biden, Bloomberg, and then about, um, you know, 27% of uh, them voted for Sanders. So yes, there was some effort to shore up Sanders, but nothing compared to the sincere, apparent sincere voting uh, of Republicans voting for the moderates. Okay, so that I was about to ask you, how do you know they're sincere, they're voting, but you you, you're able to see it by who they who they voted for. Yes, yes. Um, Okay, 
so we've kind of talked about this already, but you've coined, I think you coined this term, and this is also part of part of your case, negative partisanship, um, where, well, you tell me, I mean, I've got a definition here, but you define negative partisanship. <laughs> so to tell you the truth, I didn't coin the term <gasps> negative partisanship. It comes from somebody else, although I don't know exactly who. Uh, <laughs> I did ask Alan, um, my, um, you know, uh, my godfather in polarization academically, uh, Alan Abramowitz, you know, did you come up with this? And he said, no, I didn't come with it. So I'm really 100% sure who the first person to use it in political science literature is. Uh, but it refers to the um, negative emotions that people have about the opposition party. Mm-hmm. So the fear, the hate, the apathy uh, that you might feel as a Republican towards Democrats or vice versa. Now, where my innovation is, is I'm taking something, you know, I'm taking this concept of negative partisanship and applying it to electoral behavior, to voting behavior. And that's an innovation that no one had done yet. Right. So um, and, and I'm specifically arguing negative partisanship drives people to show up to vote and also um, keeps them from supporting the opposition party candidate. We've seen much less crossover voting, especially in federal elections than we used to see. This idea that, um, you know, that's why I uh, put out that analysis of the 2018 House elections, because every time I see somebody on TV say, oh, you know, if if Democrats don't hug the middle, they'll be in trouble because all those Republicans that helped flip the House for in the suburbs, you know, they're going to abandon them. And I'm like, those people don't exist. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's, uh, you know, I show it right there in the voter file. You know, what happened in the suburbs is, you know, those millennials and um, some of them are Democrats, some of them are independents who hadn't been voting, showed up and voted in 2018 in droves. And they have different political preferences. Uh, They have, you know, we're voting for Democratic candidates and they're going to play a major role in 2020. too. And this gets to a larger, a larger thing that comes up in this I liked it. I don't know if you liked it. This very nice profile of Rachel in, Pol- in Politico magazine, but making the point, like, there's no swing voter. Um, and it didn't matter who was running. It mattered who was voting. Yes. And we're really seeing that play it, play itself out in the Democratic primary race where the number of people, I'm sure it's on your Twitter feed as, it, as much as it is on mine, vote blue no matter who. Oh, right, right. I mean, case in point is Donald Trump sitting in the White House, right? I mean, that should not happen. And in a political system that's that's healthy, in an American democracy that's in a healthy, um, you know, uh, good place, Donald Trump is not electable, right? He breaks every single rule of electability. And then um, even the ones you haven't thought and of yet. And even the ones you haven't thought of yet. Uh, you know, he's definitely not a cause. He's a symptom of a sick system. Right. But, yeah, the fact that he is sitting in the White House is every day a walking, talking contradiction or proof that something is different about the electorate, about American politics and about this moment of time that we're living in. And yet people seem to want to ignore that and expect the normal rules or modus operandus to still be in effect. Right. And, uh, you know, obviously things are not normal because Trump is sitting in the White House. Okay, uh, 2020, I've already talked about how you say the Bittekoffer model shows, at least right now, Democrats, the Democratic nominee winning 279 electoral votes, the President Trump winning 197 electoral votes. You said earlier that the model is going to be updated in the com- in the coming days, coming weeks, and then again later on. 
and you're updating it to be more favorable to the Democrats, but you won't tell me you won't tell me who. And that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> um, but you have also gone on record as this talking about the House and the Senate. Oh, yes. And so the House, you think that the Democrats can pick up oh, yes. more seats? Definitely. You want to put a number on it? Have you put a number on it? I, you know, I put out a uh, article. My gosh, I mean, it must be at least eight months ago now that uh, identified twenty pickup opportunities. They certainly have cap- the capability to gain all of those if they were to deploy effective campaign strategy. Now uh, we are talking about the Democrats, so that's a big <laughs> if. Uh, you know, a, a lot of them are seats that they could have picked up in twenty eighteen, but they are still. They at least then were operating under the old campaign. Um, com- you know competitiveness, some of it is obvious, right? So like I said, um, you know, all the analysts knew the 21 Hillary Clinton districts that had Republicans serving in the House were going to be good pickup opportunities for Democrats. Uh, but my model does is it's looking at the demographic composition, especially the percent college educated population uh, and, the you know, saying, hey, these are the places where so, uh, suburban realignments occurring, basically, and Democrats have the opportunity to expand their influence. Okay, and uh, the Democratic Party, the D trip, was not looking at the map that way in 2018, so they left races uncontested or uninvested in in 2018, and and that's what these uh, mostly um, are races that that could have been competitive in 2018 and um, now are competitive in 2020 because they were either underinvested in or um, you know, you know, not identified mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. And the Senate. And the Senate. And, and, yep. and let's talk about the Senate. People, as much as they're desperate for President Trump to be gone, they're desperate for a Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to be gone. Is it going to be gone? So it's going to be really close, right? But my, um, yeah, so my followers are probably like, she says she's going to put this out and she never did. So I'm a one woman show (laughs) and I'm in this like weird nexus place right now where I'm in between like probably the tail end of my brief stint in academia and going into data journalism. So I'm like literally a one woman show and I work about 15 hours a day. Um, But I'm trying to get all my forecast updates out and I do owe my followers my house and my Senate ratings. I do talk pretty openly about what they're going to say, though. And I say, you know, Colorado and Maine are basically sure things to flip. And I I think so, too, are Arizona. Holy smokes. Mm -hmm. So you're saying Susan Collins' days are numbered as a senator from Maine. Definitely. And 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 Cory Gardner Gardner should have retired because it's like his he's so doomed that he shouldn't even have run. He's like Barbara Comstock, but for the Senate. Oh, Uh, wow. Who ran for reelection in the Virginia as a Virginia member of the U.S. House. Yes. And she and she was she and she was, um, you know, she was district patient one. In my model, basically, you know, ah. and I, I'm happy to say we've been, we've kind of become friendly in in the time period since she's since she uh, lost has her election. Her and she has more time on her hands, and you know, she's actually a big fan of the Bitterkoffer model and research, and and you know, I think that a real testament to the kind of person that she is too. Mm-hmm. Right, um, South Carolina, Lindsey Graham is yep. is yep. up. Yep. What, so, what what are the chances of Jamie? Harrison? So Jamie Harrison has a good chance because. Because he is going to motivate black voters to vote, right? Um, so I am much more interested, my model, my theory, interested in what we call descriptive representation and what it does to turnout than ideological representation and turnout. So like the Sanders people argue, oh, if we just have these radical positions, people will show up to vote. 
Eh, no. Okay. I mean, I do think that Democrats suppress their own turnout by running around in, uh, in doing this, um, what I call the embarrassed Democrat platform, like, a, oh, I'm not really one of those Democrats. I'm a fiscal conservative, like as if fiscal conservative conservatism has a good record, right? I mean, it's like the shittiest record you could possibly have. I mean, how can you, why would you want to be a fiscal conservative, right? It's a terrible record. It's like 30 years of just duh, right? So uh, I'm confused by by why like you would do that rather than just making a positive um, moderate message for economic liberalism, right? Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that you need to run around saying, I'm going to give you free everything, everything's going to be great, it's going to be rainbows and kittens, right? What I argue is that turnout differentials primarily stem from two things, young people and voters of color, Latinos and African Americans, and what they want in the year 2020, women and um, other underrepresented groups, is some representation, right? They want their party to look like them, right? So like in Biden, Biden's case, since he's going to be the nominee, you know, they his team is probably really tempted to put Amy Klobuchar on the ticket because she's all shucks, you know, really popular in the Midwest, whoop-de-woo, but she is a white woman, right? You cannot have a Democratic ticket in the year 2020 that's all white. Like, you just can't do it. Like, the coalition, this part, this is the most racially rich, ethnically diverse party in the history of the country. But It ra- needs to look like that. But, Rachel, we had... Julian Castro, yes. Cory Booker, yes. Kamala Harris, yes. and they were among the first to drop out. Yeah, but that's all because of name ID. So, like, so there's like this really mass like misunderstanding of what happened with the candidates of color in this race, mm-hmm. and and it's because, uh, and this is a very unfortunate aspect of American politics. The voters are really. Um, uninformed and tuned out, right? And we think that everyone's tuned in, but I just ran a study to prove this in Virginia. The modal amount of candidates that my voters in 800 and some odd Virginia voters who are a little bit smarter than the average bear uh, were able to name is about six or seven of the 25 candidates that ran, okay? And, you know, um, most, like, uh, Pete Buttigieg's name ID all the way through January, 40% of people who said they were going to vote in the Democratic primary, so they're already a more elite group of voters than your average American, had never heard of the dude, okay? Like, we live in a bubble, a, a big, big bubble. So why did Kamala Harris and Julian Castro and Cory Booker struggle? It's because nobody knew who the hell they were, and the reason that Joe Biden is the nominee and not Booker is because he was the vice president for eight years. And that's the only difference is it's all name ID. And that's why when when Bloomberg came out with his half billion dollar name ID plan and a lot of people poo pooed it, I said, well, you know, it's going to work to some extent because all it is for many, many people is just getting them to know who the hell you are. Like that is such a huge hurdle in the electorate, it always has been, but especially now that we don't have common information sources, TV, newspapers, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Final uh, question is coming back to the Senate. Do the Democrats have even the remotest possibility of flipping the Senate? Yes. 
Yes, but they're going to probably lose the Alabama Senate seat. Yeah. <gasps> Doug Jones. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Doug. Alum of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Twice. Oh, is he? Yes. is a wonderful individual. I think Doug Jones is also very shrewd. Uh, his vote for impeachment was very smart. You know, he, he did the moral thing and voted to impeach a very guilty, very, very destructive president. And, um, you know, I think that that is a understanding of the constraints that he faces. Now, what happened in 2017 in that special election, I had been in Birmingham about two weeks before that election doing a talk on my book, and somebody had asked me if if he could win. And I said, well, you know what? If if, If every Democrat in the state of Alabama shows up to vote, he can win. And well, that's what happened, right? But you know, in a turn, that's a low turnout environment, right? The special election, even a midterm, a high turnout presidential, uh, that's going to be a tough. That's tough, right? Even if the nominee is either um, Jeff Sessions and the president's crapping all over him, so many Republicans, and you know where where. what else helped him? It was that independent vote. So there was a, tur- a double-edged turnout surge, sur- surge, just like my House elections. I haven't looked at the voter file. Um, I only have looked at exit poll data from Alabama. But I know that if I pulled the voter file, what I would see, and I could say compared it to a previous similar Senate election, I would see a turnout surge of Democrats and independents that had not voted previously in the midterms. And those are left more left leaning independents than, um, you know, previous other independents that tend to vote. But there's but, you know, they they needed to thread the needle. And even then, it's like a one point threshold that he won by. Right. Uh, He didn't win by by very much against a a credibly accused child molester. And that's because 90 percent of Republicans voted for the child molester. Right. Uh, Because, you know, partisanship is a hell of a drug. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, So I just it's hard to imagine that he can win. It's it's not impossible. I won't say it's impossible because, you know, we just saw the Kentucky gubernatorial race. Yes. You know, which those that I was going to ask you if that was a canary in the coal mine, the the suburban districts there that saw an explosion of of voter participation. Um, but you're giving me that look of like, mm, no. Well, no. I mean, the, the so two things happened in Kentucky, though. Half of it's my story, the model, and my research. And that's a huge turnout surge in the suburbs of Lexington and um, you know, the other city in Kentucky. Louisville. Louisville. Uh, but there's more to the story. It took two stories to happen. And, and that was there was crossover voting. And, and that's because we do see that sometimes, in, especially gubernatorial elections. We just saw it in Louisiana. It's oh, crossover voting common. where they vote for one party in one yeah. seat and, and then so the other party in the next. There are definitely people who showed up to vote. And these are not maybe not Republicans, but they're at least independents who can Cast ballots for the Democratic candidate for governor and Republicans for lieutenant governor and assist and uh, attorney general. And that is called split ticket balloting. It's extraordinarily rare now. It is much more rare in federal races, though. So it would be very rare to see a Senate like split like that. Right. For governor's race, though, it's it's not. I happen to think it was Bevin's overreach on Medicaid expansion. I think that's an X factor that we have to consider. So, like, you know, when you look at can Amy McGrath, like, basically repeat it? I'm very bearish on that. 
Rachel Bittacoffer, I could sit here and talk to you for another hour, but I can't do that. Rachel Bittacoffer, election forecaster and analyst, senior fellow at the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C. Thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. No, the pleasure was all mine, I can assure you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.